Hello and welcome to session eight of the recovery course. Tonight's talk is called Time to Confess. And we're looking at step five of the 12-step program, which says this. We admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. And with that, I've put a verse from the New Testament, written by a chap called James. In one of his letters, it says this. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. Let's quickly review what we've achieved so far. We've spent the last seven weeks facing up to our denial, admitting that by our own willpower, we're powerless to control our addictive and compulsive behavior, and that as a result, our lives have become unmanageable, and they have been running increasingly out of control. And we've also come to see, when we looked at step two, that while we may not be certifiably insane, many of our actions and decisions have not been those of someone we would consider a sane person. Or as someone said at an AA meeting, we're all here because we're not all there. And, and it's only through uh, and with the power of God that we have any real hope of getting out of this mess that we've created. Then three weeks ago, we were encouraged to make a uh, once-in-a-lifetime decision to turn our lives over to God, our higher power. That was in step three and we were encouraged to submit our wills to him daily. It involved what uh, we call repentance, which is, if you like, just a turning away from our sins, which is all the negative stuff in our life that separates us from God, and it damages us, and it's the stuff that damages those around us. And then we were encouraged to submit ourselves to God's view of life, rather than our own and we subsequently asked him to fill us with his Holy Spirit so that our lives would be empowered and supernaturally transformed if you like from the inside out if we have completed the first three steps of the 12-step program to the best of our ability we have as a result got right with God despite the methodical approach of this course, it is sometimes necessary for us to go back to the beginning again, especially if we have relapsed. Don't feel bad if you have relapsed. It's part and parcel, really, of recovery. It happens. And it's merely an indication that a crucial part of the programme has not been fully taken on board. And the most likely area that we haven't got a grip on is step one. The root cause of our problem is denial and the excuses that we come up with to use again. It's amazing, I think, the mind games that we sometimes play with ourselves. Recently, I came across some excuses uh, why people did not have a TV license in the UK, uh, where more than 400,000 fee evaders are caught every year. 
And a TV licensing spokesman said that the range of reasons given by people when inquiry officers called at their house ranged from the sublime to the ridiculous. And recently they, they published a list of the most bizarre expl explanations given for not paying for the licence when the licence uh, inspectors turned up. Here at half five of them, the first, first person said, a pigeon fell down the chimney and broke the aerial, so I have bad reception. <laughs> Another one said, gave the reason for not having a licence, as my 11-year-old son must have bought the TV during the night. It, it wasn't there when I went to bed. Another person said, I only use the TV to keep the horses company, and one of them is blind, so I should only pay half if I have to pay at all. Another person said, I can't get the TV out of the box. Can you help me? And another person said, I've not bought a license, as I dreamt I didn't have to. And the saying is, you've got to follow your dreams. <laughs> now, the excuses that we come up with when we are thinking of using again also range from the sublime to the ridiculous. But with addiction, there is no room for excuses. No matter how funny they may be, if we are entirely and constantly conscious of our powerlessness over our addictions, then we will avoid using again at any cost. If we listen to the amiable, alluring voice uh, that tries to, it's in our head and it tries to convince us, oh, just once more, won't hurt. And that since we've been so successful over these last couple of months, we can now afford to maybe dabble just occasionally. If we do that, we will be right back at the start in no time at all. And for some of us, that relapse can be fatal. When we step back into the ring with our addiction, it's a little bit like preparing to go 10 rounds with a heavyweight champion of the world at boxing. Point is, we won't last 10 rounds. We'll be badly damaged before the end of the first round. Some of us potentially terminally damaged. If any of us have relapsed or are struggling bag badly with the thought that it could happen at any moment. Don't panic. Have a word with your group leader and they will share uh, some thoughts uh, with you about, how, uh, about relapse avoidance. And also share your struggles with your fellow small group members. They'll love to encourage you. If you'd like it, you don't have to, they'll happily pray for you in your struggles. I hope maybe some of us are beginning to discover that prayer, maybe for the first time in our lives, appears to be working in our struggles with our addiction. Now, over the last two weeks, we began what is probably the most difficult stage of the recovery journey with a 12-step program, and that is step four, which is all about getting right with ourselves. And we've begun this by making a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, uh, producing a record, if you like, of all the resentments and other major negative stuff in our lives uh, that we have been too ashamed to ever disclose to another person and we've spent years even trying to deny the existence of. 
And of course, that naturally brings us on to this next level, step five. And the purpose of this inventory we've been writing is to candidly scrutinize and confess our faults to ourselves, to God, and then to another person we trust. And if you're anything like me, you really aren't looking forward to this step. But let's look on the positive side. What does step five actually do? Step five begins to free us from the things in our lives that are enslaving us. When we bring into the light those things that we've meticulously shrouded in darkness all our lives, they begin to lose their power over us. One thing that has been proven over and over again down the centuries to work is confession. Confession works. It's why people have been doing it for so many centuries. For most people, step five has a deeply energizing and therapeutic effect. When we confess, we are openly admitting our resentments and our sins, and we're clearly stating to God and to another person that wrong is wrong and that we're taking responsibility for our shortcomings and failings. <clears throat> Over the years, our sins have built a barrier between us and God. But when we confess our sins, we receive forgiveness and the guilt and the shame are removed. They're no longer there. And maybe we have already begun to experience the benefits of this step five dynamic uh, in our small group. Maybe you have shared something from your past that up until now you have never ever shared with another living soul. And yet you found yourself disclosing it to another group of 10 people that you hardly know. And if you have done that, I'd ask you, what has been the result? There's been no condemnation. And you've probably begun to experience a great weight being lifted from you. And it can even be quite an intoxicating experience to unload this stuff. In confession, we step out of the shadows, which is where denial lives, and into the light where reality abides. In the Old Testament, in a, in a book called Proverbs, it, it says this, you can't whitewash your sins and get by with it. You find mercy by admitting and leaving them. And St. James, again, he, he writes about the power of confession in, in that verse that we mentioned at the, the beginning. He says this, make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. And he goes on, the prayer of a person living right with God is something powerful to be reckoned with. So confession, if you like, reestablishes our friendship and partnership with God and also with our friends and families and the people around us. The guilt and the shame go, and as Paul explains in his letter that he wrote to the Romans, he says this, those who enter 
into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Gandhi said, there is no God higher than truth. And the truth is, if we want our lives to run more smoothly and be increasingly pain and stress free, they need to be founded on honesty and truth. No matter how difficult we may find that. The Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he said this, we do not err because truth is difficult to see, it's visible at a glance. We err because this is more comfortable. And that's exactly the problem that many of us face and what we've been doing for so much of our lives. But it is also why we are where we are now. Recovery does not work that way. Recovery is dependent on honesty and truth. And as Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not might set you free, the truth will set you free. It's not up for debate, this one. It will set you free. And we need to fully understand, however, that our lives will never be totally pain-free. We're not, so we say, selling some kind of ideal that our lives from now on will be like floating along on a bed of rose petals. Life will always have pain in it. The writer Tim Hansel, who is in continuous severe physical pain from a climbing accident that he had several years ago, has written, pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. We cannot avoid pain, he says, but we can avoid joy. Someone also once said, you are only as sick as your secrets. And when we begin to share our secrets, we will feel as though a great weight has begun to be lifted from our shoulders and a healthy sense of self will begin to develop in its place. I love uh, the stuff that King David wrote in the Psalms because I love the way he um, wears his heart on his sleeve says what he's actually thinking. And he expresses eloquently, I think, what many of us here have begun to feel. He said this, there was a time when I wouldn't admit what a sinner I was, but my dishonesty made me miserable and filled my days with frustration. My strength evaporated like water on a sunny day until I finally admitted all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess them to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. If you've never experienced that, 
it is a staggering feeling to be free at last, to know that all your guilt is gone. So I would say continue pursuing this higher power because there's no better feeling to be had anywhere than to know that you are free and the guilt and the shame has gone. Two weeks ago in session six, we briefly looked at our tendency to blame others uh, rather than take responsibility for our own mistakes. And as we write out our moral inventory, we will probably be aware of this little voice banging away in our head that tries to tell us our current predicament is primarily someone else's fault and not ours. As addicts, we are almost always thinking it's down to someone else when things don't work out quite as we want. It's never me. It's always someone else. But the truth is that we never find peace coming into our lives when we continue to blame and point a finger at someone else. Someone once said, when you blame others, you give up your power to change. And a leading US lawyer called Louis Neiser wrote this, when a person points a finger at someone else, he should remember that four of his fingers are pointing back at him. Shifting blame does not work. In Matthew, one of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says this, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you, when your own face is distorted by contempt? Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbour. One of the things about recovery is me, looking at me, forgetting everyone else's part in my downfall. What is my part in my downfall? Because I'm responsible for my own life. And self-pity has to go. I mentioned this before in, a, in an earlier talk about self-pity. And um, funnily enough, I, it was highlighted by, um, I had a young guy come here who was on heroin. And uh, for a period, he got off... He got off heroin for a couple of weeks. And I remember him coming in, and he, he was looking great. And I said, how's it been going? And he went, not too good. Since I gave up heroin, my hay fever's come back. <laughs> I mean, give me strength, somebody. But isn't it weird? We all do it. We all have these self-pitying, poor old me thoughts. 
Grow up. Smell the coffee. Take responsibility for your own life. You can choose to find life and you will get it if that's what you want and that's what you choose. It's as simple as that. And self-pity, all it does is keep us down a deep, dark hole. Our lives are impregnated with many resentments and all of us probably have one particular root of anger and bitterness that I think we would probably call the big one. And I know I did. And all my problems, all my other problems, paled into insignificance alongside this one problem. And it was not a place I wanted to return to due to the painful emotions that I knew would be stirred. There came a time, though, when a particularly bad incident brought everything to a head and I knew I had to confront the profoundly difficult issue of forgiveness if I was ever going to experience true freedom. And I come to the realization, it was almost like a light switch going on. And I realized that my life is precious. And I didn't want to waste any more years before I could be truly free. And so I rang a friend of mine who, who's a counsellor and we worked through it together. And the lesson I learned was timing. I'd known for decades that sooner or later I would have to deal with this particular demon and at last I realised the time was right. Now, was I looking forward to it? Absolutely not. But like a trip to the dentist, you know it has to be done. It cannot be put off any longer. So as we do this step, let's keep reminding ourselves of how God acts with each one of us. In the Old Testament, there's a prophet called Hosea. And in there, God says these amazing words. Now, they, they, they were actually God speaking about a nation, about a country. But they equally apply to us as individuals. And this is God speaking. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called, the further he went from me. It was I who taught him to walk, taking him by the arms. But he did not realize it was I who healed him. I led him with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from his neck and bent down to feed him. And that's the tenderness with which God deals with each one of us. Might not feel like it at times, but that is the truth. And most of our resentments that we've been looking at in step four and are now coming to a head in step five will probably be a reasonable size, which means getting rid of them will be no big deal and the sense of freedom that we gain from doing it will be profoundly liberating. So crack on with all that stuff without delay and just do it. Be ruthless, go for the kill. But with the big one, and we all have the big one, take it easy. Be kind to yourselves. Don't rush it. Don't let people tell you what you ought to do. 
Don't let people tell you what you should do. Deal with the big one when you feel it is right for you. Don't bury it away and, and kid yourself it doesn't matter. It does. It is toxic. It is killing you. That's the reality. But you will know when the time is right to face up to it. It took me years to get to the point of saying, now I'm ready. And I wish I could have done it sooner, but I couldn't. But what I do know is that at last I'm beginning to be free to be truly myself. And I'm nearer to being the person that God has intended me to be than I've ever been before. Interestingly, this difficult thing involves forgiveness. And I now find myself back in a place where I'm having to go through it all again. Because the thing about forgiveness, particularly if the person's still alive and still causing us a great deal of grief and pain, is that new issues keep coming up to poke the raw spot. When someone's died, sometimes the dealing with forgiveness can end up easier because once you do deal with it, it's, it's almost like it's finished. But when someone is alive, it keeps coming back. Don't get deflated and disheartened because you, you think, oh, I should have got this sorted by now. I should have got this forgiveness done. There must be something wrong with me that it's now all returned and I can't get it sorted. It's life. It happens. It's not a problem for God. Just accept it's there and start asking him to help you go through it again. Don't get disheartened. And as we embark on this act of confession, for some of us, the effect will be instantaneous. But for most of us, it can often take a few days before we begin to feel the difference. And during this period, we may be assorted with doubts about the wisdom of disclosing what we are deeply ashamed about so comprehensively to someone else. You know, that little voice will be banging away saying, you shouldn't have said that. Oh, they must think you're the most awful person to have ever walked on the planet. Remember, when we've put our life and our trust into the care of God, there is no condemnation. So that little voice in our head is lying. It's not God speaking. That's not the reality of the situation. It's that little voice that we all have in our heads lying to us. And deal with that. Tell it to go. And also bear in mind that your sponsor for step five, whether you, you, you look one for here among your group leaders, <clears throat> whether you, you go to an anonymous fellowship and get one there, they will never tell anyone else the secrets that you disclose. Within this course, as in all the fellowships, the confidentiality of step five is absolutely sacrosanct. And from personal experience, one thing I can say is that once you do find the courage to do it, you will never regret it. And the beauty of it is you only have to do it once. And remember this, some of you have already been doing your step five in your small groups since week one. 
only you just haven't realised it. You have been sharing stuff, some of you, of which you've never told a living soul that you're deeply ashamed of. You are confessing it. That's your step five. And for many of you, there's probably not too much more to reveal. But what there is, find yourself a sponsor and go through the rest. Okay, thanks very much indeed.